All right, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn with me your copy of God's Word as we approach the preaching of the Word now. Uh, we're going to be in John 3 tonight, as we have been the last few weeks, but we're going to be looking at uh, verses 22 through 36. So again, you can turn your copy of God's Word to John 3, starting in verse 22. Now, as a quick story, <coughs> and... Uh, um, it's funny, uh, Mom, actually, I wasn't, uh, didn't know you'd be here tonight until I invited you, so it's actually funny. I have a quick story, and actually, you're part of this, so surprise, right? I know. I thought I'd never do this, but here you are. <laughs> so you've been warned. No, it's a good, it's a good story. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> it's a good story. But yeah, so when I was 10, my mom, who's right here, uh, convinced me to play soccer. Uh, this is when I was like in fifth grade, or going into fifth grade, if I recall correctly, with our Auburn soccer team. And, uh, you know, growing up in Seattle at the time, before there was pickleball and it was all the rage, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Seattle, she's from Tacoma. So there you pickleball. go. Pickleball. Boom. Yeah, pickleball. But before pickleball was all the rage, soccer was like the thing in Seattle. And you know that, I'm sure, Tori, as well. Like, I'm sure it was big I in played, Tacoma. I played, uh, not in Tacoma, but I did play soccer. Oh, there you go. There you go. See? No, I'm so old. We didn't even have soccer. I have been great soccer. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, believe it or not, Ben, soccer was the biggest sport in Seattle, at least back in the 90s. <laughs> and all the while, I mean, I loved the idea of playing soccer. I think you probably knew that. I loved the idea of it. Now, was I very good at it? I don't think so. <laughs> but not long after I learned the basics of kicking and blocking and attempting, keyword attempting, to score that first goal, I quickly realized that that sport just wasn't for me. <laughs> Nor were both most sports. I'm just not very athletic by nature. But later on that same year, if I recall, you encouraged me to join the band in fifth grade. And right, band, I know band geeks unite, right? And so I ended up picking up the trombone, uh, and maybe I have rose-colored glasses here, but in part, it was because of my love for all things ska music. I used to love like Five Iron Frenzy and o the OC Supertones, right? And so I finally, it wasn't soccer, but it was, it was band, I finally found my niche, right? Now, in order to find, though, my proper place in life as a, you know, fifth grader and be truly content in how God had wired me personally as a lover of music, not so much sports, <laughs> I had to give up what could have otherwise been a pretty fun pastime, you know, soccer, right? But the thing is that something had to die in order for the better thing to live. The bun. The better thing to live. Yeah. And I'm sure that each one of us <laughs> I'm sure that each one of us can relate with this notion though. That sometimes it takes yeah. something dying in our life. Oh, I see what you're saying now, you're femur. Yeah. <laughs> Took me a moment well, there. No, but that's a good one. Okay, well yeah, never mind. We'll come back to you then. We'll come back to you. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. That's what I'm about to draw, but not my life. Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment, Esther. Um, but again, like something had to die in order for something else to live. And we're all accustomed to this notion. We get it, right? Like, no pain, no gain kind of thing, right? But we live in a world nowadays that is so consumed with the ideas of self-promotion and the fun phrase of radical individualism. It's a fun topic for later. And the idea of vainglory or vanity. Of what? Vanity. Oh. That we ourselves often pride our own selves in our gifts and in our accomplishments rather than living in humility before God and before others. 
We're often too pride, in other words, to basically say, look, this actually isn't for me. This really doesn't belong for me. So how do we then buck this trend as, as Christians, right, in a fallen in a broken world? How do we buck the trend of becoming so prideful and full of ourselves and rather seek to honor God in such a very prideful and egotistical culture? Well, if we desire to see the glory of Christ increase here in our own church at Downtown Presbyterian and extend to our mission field as we were just praying for in downtown Lynchburg, I believe we must learn how to die to ourselves on a daily basis. And everything rises and falls upon this. Dying to ourselves on a daily basis. But see, like, like giving up soccer in order to find true joy in another activity, when we choose to finally die to ourselves, it is then and only then that we will find real life in Christ. Now, accordingly so, John 3, our passage tonight, John 3, 22 through 36, teaches us that if we want to experience that joy, the joy that is set before us in Christ, we must live in obedience to him, both as a church plant, but also as individuals within our church. It's going to be a both-and kind of situation if we want to glorify Christ. So without further ado, let's go ahead and now come to the reading of God's holy word. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 22. The word of God says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the holy word of God, faithful, true, and given to each one of us here in love. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to the preaching of your holy word, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to discern truth, and to know it and to love it all the more. 
Jesus, I pray that you would use this time to minister to our souls in the exact way that we need to be ministered to right now. You truly are the shepherd of our souls, the overseer of them, the one who loves us and who gave himself for us. And so we ask that you would use this time to minister to us and, and serve our souls even with the very word of life, the word of God, the gospel, the message, the hope of all the earth. Lord Jesus, use me as your servant, as a vessel of mercy in your hands. And let myself get out of the way. Rather, let the message itself of Christ be what is before us and be what stirs us to action, to belief, and to repentance. So we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, friends, again, if we want to experience the joy that is set before us, the joy of eternal life in Christ. We must live in obedience to him. That's our main idea for tonight. Now, in the first half of our passage, we will see this theme of rejoicing over the Son. John the Baptizer was going on and on about how his joy is complete. This is what I was sent for. This is my mission. And later on, in the last few verses, we're going to see the theme of obeying the Son. Both of these belong to us. We must be those who not just rejoice in the Son, but also obey the Son. Those will be all our two points for tonight. Now, the nature of rejoicing over someone else might sound a little foreign to us. You know, how often do we rejoice over somebody? We kind of maybe get a little weird mental picture of rejoicing over somebody in our minds when we think of that. But this idea, really, of rejoicing over someone requires humility in the face of otherwise perceived competition with that person. You can't rejoice over somebody, in other words, unless you don't see them as a competitor or someone who's against you. You don't rejoice over an enemy. You rejoice over a friend. And our passage tonight <clears throat> paints this picture very clearly for us, of a friend rejoicing over the Savior. See, in verse 22 and following, we see this intentional but also literary comparison between the two ministries of Jesus and John the Baptizer. The Word of God tells us that Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside after they had been in Cana back in John 2 and even Jerusalem for a while at the temple where we last saw them and then when he was approaching Nicodemus and all, right? Now they're coming up over to the Judean countryside and we see in verse 22 that his group of disciples, specifically, were baptizing the people in Jesus' name. By the way, John 4, verse 1, clarifies that Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, but rather his disciples did. But they were doing it in his name. Now, meanwhile, John was also baptizing still. He was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, which was likely just a few short miles due west of the Jordan River. And this area, Anon, was in many ways a landmark because of the few springs of water bubbling up from the ground. See, the word anon literally means spring or fountain even coming up from the ground in the Greek. And so there were a few springs, and historians have actually come across this place where there were probably about three or four different springs coming up from the ground. Anon. Where he was, anon, yeah. Okay. Where, he was, where he was baptizing, you know, getting the water and baptizing the people. And so anon, spring, that's what that means. But here in line... 
Herein lies the comparison, though. See, while Jesus' priestly ministry itself was just beginning here at this point in the gospel narrative, John the Baptizer's ministry was coming to a swift and very intentional close in the economy of God. This is why John 3, verse 24 foreshadows for us that John had not yet been put in prison. It's basically telling us, hey, his time's almost up, by the way. Like, he's about to go into prison. You know what's coming next. He's about to be beheaded, right? Now, additionally, Jesus' baptism then, by means of his disciples, again, John 4, verse 1 spells it out clearly for us, was in the presence of the one, Jesus, who could actually purify the people, identifying them with himself and their need of his righteousness, whereas John's baptism had been poured out over the people in order to not purify them, but to prepare them for the Lamb of God whose blood alone could atone for their sin. Now, the comparisons weren't already stark enough. There's another comparison on top of here that we see in our text. We see that John's disciples were not staying with John. They were actually leaving one by one by one, and they were heading over and following Jesus instead of staying loyal to him, quote-unquote, right? So I'm sure John's disciples felt this growing sense of competition with Jesus and his disciples. You know, we're losing members over here, church members, if you will. We're losing people. And you can imagine the tension that was happening even below the surface, spiritually speaking, within John's disciples. Now, I'm sure you can relate to this notion. See, if you've ever started a group project or led people in any form or fashion for that matter, or been, let's just say, part of a church plant like this, right? <laughs> You'll know those same feelings that John's disciples expressed here in our text. The jealousy of competition. Verse 25 says this, Now, a discussion, which is a funny word, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, meaning the baptism waters. Now, of course, this is a really, really polite way of describing an argument, in my opinion. <laughs> a discussion arose, right? We all know what that means. A discussion arose. Like Southern piety, right? Oh, it's just a discussion. We kind of downplay things. It was a discussion. It was probably an argument. But it's funny because, like, even here, 2,000 years ago, even believers back then were debating over baptism. You know, like, I got to baptize so-and-so, and I got to do this, and this happened, this happened. Even back then, they were arguing over the same topic of baptism. But here's the focal point of this so-called discussion, the heart of the matter. You know, here's what's going on. The scripture says this. As the Jew and, and the disciples were coming up to John the baptizer, they said this, and quote, he who was, and catch the emphasis here, he who was with you, trying to puff up John, right? He was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You see what they're doing? They're trying to cause a separation between John and Jesus. In other words, this person or people sadly didn't live in the reality that Jesus' mediation, his being our prophet, priest, and king, what we call his mediation, him interceding for us as prophet, priest, king. They didn't live in the reality that, that mediation was exactly what John had been preparing them for that entire time. The handing off of the baton, if you will. That's exactly what John was there for. 
They didn't see the glory of Christ then in the purification of his people. They didn't care about the mission that God had given to John himself. Rather, they were tempted to perceive in their mind and in their own heart a sense of competition within the kingdom of God, and they felt with their emotions the jealousy arise within their soul. The same kind of jealousy that produces envy and coveting when left unchecked. I know this speaks to me, especially, right? Have you guys ever felt this before, too? Envy, competition, strife, etc. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, I think John says a wonderful example for us. I love the way he responds to these men. As soon as they were trying to split him and Jesus, his ministry from Jesus' ministry, look at how John responds. See, he knew Christ when he saw him. We read that earlier, right? Behold the Lamb of God, right? Who takes away the sin of the world? John understood his God-given mission to not only exalt Christ before men, but to rejoice over him with gladness of heart. And so John quickly corrected their thinking, and we see that in verse 27. He said this to them to help quell that argument or discussion. He said this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, meaning chronologically, in time. Not ahead of him in terms of importance, but ahead of him in terms of preparing the way for him. See, friends, this right here is a hallmark of not only a Christ-centered mindset, which we are called to have, but this is also just a wonderful example of good and healthy Christian leadership in general decreasing in order for Christ to be magnified before others. See, believe it or not, each one of us is a leader or an influencer in some way. And not just those YouTubers, right, who call themselves influencers, right? And Laura and I have talked a lot about that. But each one of us inevitably leads others in some form or fashion through the simple means of influence. Those two are so very much connected. See, either we are constantly influencing others or being influenced by them. And just as it is from the very heart that the mouth speaks and influences even, it is from our own heart's disposition that we lead others. So we must be people who are consistently checking our hearts. Checking, is this really from the Holy Spirit? And what I'm about to say or do or think from him, or is it from my flesh? From where am I leading other people? And so we must, as a point of application, remain humble to the Holy Spirit's conviction of our own private sins and his leading and his prompting those who have proven trustworthy and those who know us well to speak into our lives as we also speak into the lives of others. Now, this is why, in many ways, we are drawn to certain types of leaders in Christ's church and not to other types of leaders. See, oftentimes we ourselves find churches and communities that fit us, of course, right? You know, you want to be around people that like you and that you like being around. But do you realize that your own heart is constantly, constantly being drawn to find satisfaction in something that is outside yourself? 
The reason why we find communities and people that we want to be around is because we're being led by our emotions in that way. And that's not necessarily wrong, but we have to check this motivation. See, if the longing of our soul is for anything less than Christ, we will attempt over and over and over and over again to find purpose and meaning in applying these external comforts to our longings rather than resting in Christ. That lands us in a bad spot. As Augustine famously said, in his book called Confessions, so appropriately named. He confessed this in the very first chapter. He said, for you, meaning God, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, friend, when we take our eyes off of Christ and are seeking of any kind of pleasure or any kind of purpose, what may start as a fun hobby, whether it be soccer, music, whatever, good things even, it will become destructive to our souls if that becomes an idol in our hearts. And furthermore, and this is a sombering reality, even good things, appreciation for art, for instance, beauty, goodness, even truth, <laughs> they all will take the wrong turn when the pursuit of these things are not found in the heart of our God who loves us and who sent his son for us. This is why our earthly passions, when left unchecked, often get the better of us. See, when these earthly passions are sought after without the honor of God in mind, these earthly passions can lead us, and in fact they do and will lead us, into new forms of pleasure-seeking. For instance, addictions to pornography, or drug abuse, or alcoholism, self-medication of any kind. All of these things and more are cheap thrills that are misplaced pursuits of real pleasure and soul satisfaction. And all of these things are cheap thrills that cause us to feast upon a graveyard rather than to feast upon the banquet table which Christ has laid out for us, and as it's described for us in John 23, in all this glory. Now, thankfully, John, the gospel writer, <laughs> rather, actually, John the baptizer, really, in our passage, was led by the Holy Spirit when he replied to the envious comparisons being leveraged by some of his followers against Christ. Hear what he said in verse 29, a little later down in our passage. He said this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, Meaning the one that has the wife, that's the husband, right? <laughs> the friend of the bridegroom then, you know, the best man of the wedding, so to speak, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's happy for him, right? Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, John is realizing, look, Christ is getting what he came for. He came for his bride. He came for his people. And look what's happening. The people are going to him. They're being baptized in his name. He's wooing his bride. He's gathering her together and beautifying her and purifying her right before our eyes before he goes to the cross. How can I not just glory in the work of my and our Savior? See, this is why John said, 
again, this joy of mine is now complete. And then he capped it off by saying his final words here, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let me get out of the way so that Jesus gets all the glory. See, John knew who he, who he was, that he was commissioned by God the Father. He knew whom he was called to serve. He knew what his purpose in God's kingdom was. And he knew that his purpose was not a heavenly one, ultimately. That was Jesus's. He couldn't save our souls, right? Rather, his purpose was an earthly one, which is why he uses that earthly versus heavenly images. He knew that his ministry was only preparatory, whereas Christ was for purification. And he knew that Jesus's purpose in God's kingdom then was the heavenly one, the true heavenly one, and that it was purpose for purification of his bride, the church, by name. Jesus then himself was the bridegroom. John was merely the friend. Maybe the best friend of that, but just a friend. And that was his glory. It was that he was a friend of Jesus. It's like that meme. I'm just, I'm just happy to be here, right? <laughs> was that Marge Simpson? The, the best the meme? man. Yeah, yeah, the best man, yeah. It's like, I'm just happy to be here, right? Like that's basically what John was saying. I'm just, I'm just happy to be here. Stop trying to make us compete with each other. See, John knew that his role as a friend then, as a best friend at that, was to simply stand close by to Jesus. It wasn't to compete with Jesus. It was to be close enough by, to stand in honor and give him respect and dignity and reverence and to be close enough by even to hear his voice when he whispered, to hear the voice of Jesus and rejoice over his calling and purifying his people by the matchless grace of his atoning sacrifice to come upon the cross. And this is why John could say such a thing as, this joy of mine is now complete. He got what he came for. This is exactly what it was. Jesus' glory. See, his cause was to make much of Jesus and to lead repentant men and women to him in God's perfect timing. There's then the point of application for us in this. See, each one of us must know our own respective roles in God's kingdom. And once we know more clearly what that looks like, then we can live into that role that God has provided for us. And this applies to us both, not just as individuals, but also as a church plant together. And so we have a mission statement or a vision statement. So we know what our core values are here, and they're written on our bulletin, and we talk about them, and I even prayed about it earlier. Because we have to know why we're here, if we're ever going to get anything done. See, as a church plant, once we know our mission, and once we begin to live into it, we will then become a people who, like those prayer requests on the wall, start to see God answer things, and then rejoice over what God's doing. Because we see what he's doing before us. And so we'll get to rejoice in the Lord as he is saving men and women, as he's already been doing over the last few months. See, just in the past few months of being gathered together here in Lynchburg, even in this small little 300-square-foot room, <laughs> tight as it may be, even maybe as claustrophobic as you might feel like me at times, just even being here, you know, might feel a little stuffy at times. Over the past few months of being gathered here, we've already experienced so much joy as the gospel has gone forth with power, not just here in our midst during our time of worship, but as it's gone further 
through outreach events, like back in December, into the very heart of downtown Lynchburg, through ordinary conversations and through organized events alike. Friends, I've seen, I've seen grace transform hearts and change lives. In fact, two already just in the past week, and it's been beautiful to see. But there is a warning here for us, especially as we are a church planting, because the enemy loves to attack church plants and tear them down before they can even grow. And he's already tried with this over and over and over again the last few months. And so there's a warning for us. We need to watch out for the work of the enemy. See, each one of us must individually and intentionally watch out for the sin of jealous comparisonism. We need to make sure that when we see it in our own souls, that we confess it quickly before God so that he can crush it and snuff it out before it affects us. Because, friends, we are still, admittedly, small in number, obviously, right? I mean, the enemy can just pick out one of us at a time so easily, much more easily than a bigger church. It'd be so easy for the enemy, who's like a roaring lion, to come around and snatch one of us away at a time and devour us from the inside out and cause disunity. He loves to do that, especially in small churches. But even as we're small, because we're still small, in fact, and we might lack perceived influence, the temptation for jealousy specifically is and will continue to be a challenge for us as we seek to remain focused on the gospel's advancement if, if we are not choosing to be joyful in Jesus on a daily basis. So as an application, we choose joy instead of jealousy as a church plant. Thinking of our own church, I need to personally do my own part in this. And so I'd like to actually publicly confess my own sin this evening to you all as even hopefully just an example to us. See, I need to confess my own sin of comparisonism with you because I've felt it in my own heart over the past several weeks as well. Because I've struggled in my own heart with this sinful inclination every time that I step outside the front door of my house. For instance, whenever I step outside, I mean, I immediately see these huge historic church buildings. How can you not, right? There's Holy Cross, there's the United Methodist Church, there's the Big Baptist Church, right? How can you not see these buildings and then feel in that moment, wow, what are we doing? Are we making a difference? Is this really what we're supposed to do? Of course, those are all lies from the enemy, right? But I, in my own heart, as I confess it to you, feel that every time I step outside and I see these huge buildings around I think, what good is this? What good is this little tiny church plan? And I'm tempted in that moment to despise the day of small things, as Zechariah 4 says. But we are not to despise the day of small things. This is a small but beautiful church plan in the eyes of God. And I'm convinced of that. Furthermore, every week I wonder, not just about our size, right, but I wonder how God will financially provide for us when we ourselves are so utterly, completely reliant upon the generosity of others and the movement of the Holy Spirit and their lives to answer the call to support us and to come alongside us and to partner with us. And so where is the answer, right, for these things? For jealousy or discontentment? 
the answer to this dilemma is that I myself must daily learn to decrease and to yearn for the increase of Jesus and for his glory, not mine, here in downtown. This is what alone brings me joy in the ministry, as I have the joy of serving each one of you and others. It's this, the increase of Christ's glory and the decrease of my own vain glory. Now, as individuals, when we are captivated then by Jesus and the way that he is wooing his bride, whether it be through our own church plant or through the ministries of others, these good other gospel-centered ministries, other churches here in town even, it is then, as we learn to appreciate the fuller kingdom of God, that we will become truly humble, truly content, and truly filled with lasting joy. When we take time to realign the longings of our souls away from vainglory to the glory of the risen Christ, it is then that we will stand alongside him like that best man at a wedding, as friends of the bridegroom, and stand close by enough to hear his voice with excitement in our own souls once more. It's when we delight in Christ and seek first his kingdom that our joy, too, will be complete. As we turn to the last part of our passage, and this will be much shorter as a heads up, I want to remind us of our main idea. And it's this. If we want to experience the joy that is set before us, we must learn to live in obedience to Christ as a church and as individuals. So I want to focus the remaining last two, three or so minutes upon this theme of obedience then to the Son. What does obedience look like in this? We see this answered in verses 31 through 36. As a quick aside, biblical scholars are not entirely sure if verses 31 through 36 are a continuation of John the Baptizer's words themselves, or if they are actually just John the Gospel writer's words. Uh, now, I'm personally inclined to believe it was John the Gospel writer who wrote this part, um, and the ESV translates it the same way. It caps off the quotations at the end of verse 30. Because a lot of us believe that this is now John the Gospel writer speaking and giving a commentary on this. And I believe this is true, that it's John the Gospel writer, because it's the exact same kind of phraseology and themes and even gram uh, grammatical structures and constructs as the rest of the Gospel account. So it seems pretty clear that this is now John the Gospel writer giving his commentary. But regardless of who exactly said the following words, the essence of verses 31 through 36 is this. The core of it is that he who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. In other words, Christ is all. Let me get out of the way. That's the core of the message. Are these words that we're willing to live by as a church plan? See, Christ is from on high. He is adored together with the Father and the Spirit by all of the hosts of heaven who never stopped worshiping him day and night, nor would they ever desire to cease declaring his praise. But we, though we are made in his image and likeness, are from the dust of the earth, as you read earlier in Psalm 8. As such, Christ doesn't just utter the words of God. As John 3, verse 34 tells us, he himself is the divine utterance of God. He is the word of God in the flesh. And so who are we then to benefit from his word, Christ himself, spoken to us, let alone fathom these things in our hearts? Who are we? There's hope here. See, he loves to make his glory known to us. 
and that he gifts us with the Spirit without measure. For indeed, as it says here, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And we've already talked a lot the last few weeks about the theme of belief versus unbelief, especially the last couple of weeks. So I won't touch upon this too much tonight for us. But I will say this, that if we desire to believe the Son, then we also must obey the Son. The two go hand in hand, belief and obedience. For the word translated in our English language as the one who does not obey, here in verse 36, comes from the Greek word apetheo. Apetheo, which is me Greeking out again, right, Esther? Right. <laughs> we call it Greeking out. I denunciate. I know. My death. Apetheo. Self. Now, this word, though, is Self the opposite. I know, right? <laughs> this word is the opposite of the word for believe in that same verse, which is pistuo, right? I say right as if you all know Greek. <laughs> but it's basically the opposite. One is to believe in the positive. One is to not believe in the negative, in other words. Hmm. See, to believe is, in fact, to obey, and to disbelieve is to disobey. You see later on in the book of James, for instance, that faith is active, it is living, and a dead faith is no faith at all. But lest we try to conjure up our own faithfulness to Christ, and we take that away as if that's the whole point of this, I want to remind us that the only way that we can believe and obey the gospel in the first place is if the Holy Spirit himself gives us the grace to repent of our sins and so believe upon him, as Ephesians 2, 5, and following tell us. And so if you find yourself in a season where you're unbelief and where you're in action, or you're maybe perceived disobedience seem to be getting the better of you, my exhortation, my encouragement for us tonight is that we would cry out to God and confess your utter need for his gift of faith. Cry out the words, I believe, help my unbelief. See, friends, if we do this individually, and even as a church especially, if we do this with sincerity, though, as God's children, we can rest assured that he will return to us our joy in him in due time, that our unbelief will be met with the grace of belief, the gift of faith. There is great spiritual growth that happens when we learn just how dependent we are upon the Lord, for even the gift of faith, then. And so pray for the Holy Spirit to make you aware of your disbelief and of your tendency to disobey the Lord in your heart. I don't want to end on that bad note. There is good news here, don't worry. <laughs> Gospel news for us. See, as you and I become all the more dependent upon grace and faith as a gift, the more sensitive we will become to the Holy Spirit's work in not just our own souls, but also in the soul, so to speak, of us as a church body. We'll become a humble people more and more when we see the Spirit's work in us. We'll become more open-handed before the Lord as we pray for Him to reach our hearts. As we do this, as we become more open-handed before Him, the more He will cause us to not just affirm our mission as a church plant, but actually fulfill it. I believe he wants to fulfill his work in us because he started it.
he's going to finish it the way he wants. So what is our mission statement as a church plant? Laura and I and others have worked carefully and prayed so much through this, crafting this mission statement in accordance with scriptures like Acts 2.42 and Matthew 28.18-20 and Micah 6.8, for instance. And so our mission statement, which is also in your bulletin, is simply this, that we at Downtown Presbyterian desire to make disciples of Jesus in downtown Lynchburg by seeking after his lost sheep, especially the downcast, the disenfranchised, and the deconstructed, by bringing gospel healing through the preached word, the sacraments, meaning communion and baptism, prayer and fellowship, and teaching them to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That is the essence of who we are as a church plant. And so will each one of us basically step up to the plate Will you join us in living out and living in this biblical, Christ-exalting mission? As we close, recall the main idea once more. That if we want to experience the joy that is set before us in Christ, we must live in obedience to him as a church and as individuals. But before we wrap this up, I want to turn this on its head. Lest we fall into a workspace trap and think that everything depends upon us and our obedience, Right? which we are so, so good at obeying, right, aren't we? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> See, yes, we are called to obey the Son, but this obedience to the gospel message is a Holy Spirit-derived, Holy Spirit-driven, and Holy Spirit-accomplished mission as He applies the gospel to our hearts by faith. And as He then causes us to obey, as he leads us into deeper communion with Christ, and as he causes us to decrease to the increase of our Savior in our lives and in our church, then, then and only then, will our joy be complete and lack nothing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we are so grateful that we belong to you, that we are a church under your banner, the head that is Christ. And so we pray, O oh Christ, that as we seek to become a faithful church more and more with every passing day and with every passing week, that you would sanctify us and cause us to be holy, for you are holy. Cause us to live in light of grace, not out of our own um, work, but rather let us work for your glory and work to see your kingdom come as much as you would have us to see it. So we ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.